saying I'm disabled connects me with this history and this community. And having that community identity gives you strength, I think. It gives you a sense of power. You're not all alone. We are back with Ben Matlin, who is a brilliant genius, and you can hear him in the last episode and hear my intro of him. We're talking about Ben Matlin's book, Disability Pride, from Beacon Press, this year, 2022. So I think that the first question we need to know before we really discuss this book in any detail is, what is the AEDA, and how did it become the law of the land? Well, the Americans with Disabilities Act, which by now I think everyone has heard of. You go to a hotel or a restaurant, they talk about the ADA accommodations, the building codes, the laws and rules to oh, put ramps in and that kind of thing, bigger bathroom stalls and public restrooms. But it's so much more than that. I give a pretty thorough history in the first part of my book. But basically, I would say it was the Vietnam veterans were a big thing. There were a lot of disabled people coming back to this country from fighting overseas. And that created a groundswell of support and of demands. There was also better medicine and technology. People were surviving polio and getting out of the iron lung they used to use for ventilation, for mechanical breathing. You know, they began to develop portable ventilators. They were getting people out of institutions. So there was this groundswell of people, you know, living with disabilities and demanding all the things that everybody else demands from our society. Also inspired by the African-American civil rights movement. And, you know, the women's movement and the gay rights movement. There were a lot of movements in those days. And disabled people said, us too. I think that was the thing that I didn't understand, actually that the ADA and the movements leading up to it are civil rights movement. This is my, like, previously before I read these books, ableist perspective, that I assumed that this was something that abled people had done to help the disabled. That's not true. It was not charity. It was demanded. And there was a lot of activists on all fronts. There were some earlier laws, which I documented in my book, to, for instance, open up public education so that disabled kids were no longer put in totally segregated, substandard schoolrooms. Federal buildings had to be accessible architecturally to wheelchairs and blind people and so forth. And then there was the Great Rehabilitation Act of 1973, part of which, Section 504, said that all federally funded programs must not discriminate against disabled people. And that included private colleges that had federal scholarship funds, tuition grants. That's how I got to go to college, basically. I started college in 1980, the first year that law was in effect. 
But they left a lot out. That was only federal buildings. You could still discriminate against disabled people at stores and the workforce and so forth. So each of these laws, you know, they're built on top of each other, but a community began to form. I was too young to take part in any major way, but I've read the stories. You know, there were internal debates about how it should work. But anyway, a draft was made up and submitted to Congress, and there was bipartisan support. In the summer of 1990, the ADA was signed into law by the first President Bush, and I couldn't believe it. I mean, I was 28, I guess, and I thought it'd never pass. There it was. I had never much cared about politics before, but I was like, wow, this really happened. Did it get me a job? No, uh, because it was new and people were getting used to it. The unemployment rate of disabled people is still twice for disabled people what it is for the general population. So one might call that a failing of the ADA. It's a problem. The ADA had a, it's very broad. It covers pretty much everything, but it's a little vague. It's only put into effect through the courts. You don't get a ticket for being inaccessible. You have to be sued. And that's not ideal. Now, case law subsequent to the ADA has helped define the terms a little better. It's not a question of, for instance, of whether your disability counts. It's a question of whether you were discriminated against on the perception of a disability, for instance, or even a family member. You know, if my wife is discriminated against because her husband is disabled, that's an ADA lawsuit, or could be. There are also exceptions to the ADA, which is another shortcoming. A big, bad example of the airplanes. Airplanes do not have the same standard of access as restaurants, hotels, buses. There is a movement to get that changed. But then a lot of disabled people, myself included, just don't fly anywhere. It's just too damn inaccessible. Sure. Yeah, because three feet is the width that like an aisle has to be, right, in order for you to easily pass pass it in a wheelchair? I think it's about right, yeah. An airplane aisle is, you know, can't be more than 18 inches. Oh, it's worse than that, though. If I want to get on a city bus, I can do it. A ramp comes down or a lift and I get in and I flip up a seat and lock my chair in. Airplanes refuse to let wheelchairs in the cabin. You have to transfer out. And if it's a small folding chair, it might fit in the closet, might not. Most of the time, especially if it's a big motorized chair like I have, it's taken off to the baggage. And often, <laughs> I've got dimensions for every type of plane's baggage doorway because it only fits in the baggage of a larger plane. And often they have to 
take the chair apart. Now, when you land, you have no chair, or you have a pretzel where your chair used to be, you know, it's all bent up. And this happens all the time. Not to mention you can't get in the bathroom in flight, but anyway, several years ago, airlines were required to report the number of lost or damaged wheelchairs and scooters every month, as they do with all luggage. And it's something like eight or 900 every month with damage or loss. It's a real problem. It's hard for me to imagine. I've checked instruments reluctantly on airplanes, and I've gotten them back, and they've been damaged. And you know what? That's not great, but I do not need a guitar to move around. We really, really suck. Happened to all of us. That's happened to you, where you've gotten to your destination and your chair was just destroyed? Oh, yeah. I have learned to take a backup chair, if I can, a manual chair that folds up, but then I have to be pushed around all the time. But I haven't flown in years. It's just too damn hard. There is a group that has gone and done tests to show it is safe to, to remove an airplane seat or two and lock a wheelchair in place. There's a safety standard. If there's impact, if the seat is stable and the seatbelt is stable, well, wheelchair lockdown surpasses that. Safety is not a valid excuse. Basically, it's penny pinching. The airlines don't want to take up space with a wheelchair. And they say it's safety and liability, but that just does not fly, so to speak. <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> you know, airlines doing shenanigans is not at all surprising. One of the really interesting things in your book was about how the ADA has changed the word disability and the meaning of the word. Can you talk about that? You know, we don't call it the Handicapped Americans Act, Americans with Disabilities. In the sort of earlier days of the movement, activists preferred that word. There's still a bit of debate about it, but it's become the word. So I understand that there's a legal explanation. If you're legally disabled, means you're locked out of a system or something. So it was thought of less medically and more in terms of the relationship with the environment. But anyway, it is the word and it is understood as a cultural marker, an identity, and not a diagnosis or a medical observation. My disability does not define me, but it informs everything I do. I cannot separate who I am entirely from my disability. And I think that's, that's part of it. But also, saying I'm disabled connects me with this history and this community. And having that community identity gives you strength, I think. It gives you a sense of power. You're not all alone. I think it's one reason I wrote the book. I think it's important for disabled people to know their history and to know about the community. It's also important for non-disabled people to understand all that stuff. But a lot of disabled people, I think, don't have that sense of 
connection to other disabled people. Getting better, well, the internet helps a lot. There are all kinds of online communities, but you are not alone, you know. Now, maybe people prefer seeing disabled person, but 20, 30 years ago, you had to say person with a disability, put the person first. But now it's part of the whole disability pride movement, say disabled first. Don't hide it at the end of the phrase. Tomato, tomato. It sounds like two opposite rationales for the same goal to me. Yeah, you know, it's only words, right? But the point is, disabled disability can be a connection to others and to history and an identity that you can take pride in, however you say it. All right, this might be a big one, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Do you think that capitalism is antithetical to a disabled-friendly society? Sure can be. If by capitalism, you're talking about the constant need to meet certain milestones in society to gain respect, that's not too friendly to the disability lifestyle. But I grew up with it. I'm indoctrinated in the capitalist ethos, and I have a hard time shucking that off. That doesn't mean I'm going to discount people who are not rich and successful, because people are valued by virtue of being human beings. I think that the prevailing wisdom is that capitalism doesn't regard human beings as having value. I think that that's probably true, but capitalism is not a religion, nor is it a system of governance. It is just an economic philosophy. So this is not as much in your book, but you do talk about these activists who are sort of anti-capitalist in addition to being whatever else they are. And I guess you could make the case that capitalism puts values on people and that disabled people under capitalism would have lower value because they're able to produce less. But I don't know if capitalism itself makes that distinction. Disabled people are expensive. We use a lot of resources. For the Nazis, <laughs> that was hard to justify. So the most accessible society is one that recognizes that we have to help each other, take care of each other. Yeah, I would agree. I think that there's room to have a capitalist society in which every human being has value. I would even go so far as to say I think that is what America strives for, although we always fall short of that goal. I think that is what the goal is. So... The last question that we ask everybody, recommend two books to our listeners. <laughs> I like a lot of books. Disability Wise, big star at the moment, is Alice Wong, who just came out with an interesting memoir called Year of the Tiger. I mentioned before Emily Ladau's book, Demystifying Disability. I'm a memoir freak. A lot of memoirs I like that nothing to do with disability per se. I mean, Mary Carr's Lit, which is about alcoholism. I don't know. Maybe that's a disability. Among my favorites today, <laughs> might change tomorrow. I could go on and on. 
My guest next week is Mikkel Sekaris. He is a doctor. He's a hematologist. He cures cancer, that kind of stuff. We're reading The Brief and Wondrous Life of Oscar Wow by Juno Diaz. One of my favorite books. One of the books that I would maybe choose if I were on this show. It's an instant classic. If you haven't read it, you should read it. It's just a really great book. The Brief and Wondrous Life of Oscar Wow by Juno Diaz. We'll see you next week. The Book Society podcast is hosted by me, Lucas Cantor Santiago, and produced by Santiago Ramones. I guess I produce it too. Santiago edits it, does all the important stuff, and I just talk to the guests and read the books. So I hope you like it. If you do like it, it would be great if you could rate and review it because that really helps the show. It helps other people find the show. And the more people listen to the show, the more awesome guests we're going to be able to get. So rate and review the podcast. Thanks very much. This episode was brought to you by the Miami Book Fair. The Miami Book Fair 2022 has passed, but the Miami Book Fair 2023 is coming up in November of 2023. If you want to be a part of it and you want to hear about the greatest books that are coming out next year, now is the time to start making plans to be in Miami the week before Thanksgiving. It's always a good time. I'm going to be there. Santiago is going to be there. So many of these great writers are going to be there, and it's going to be great. Safety standard of, I think it's 16 Vs, whatever, force of gravity. If there's impact, if the seat is stable, if the seatbelt is stable, or wheelchair lockdown surpasses that up to 20 Gs. Ben, I think at 20 Gs, you're going to be just jelly in a wheelchair. <laughs> I don't think anyone's going to survive 20 Gs. <laughs> <laughs>